0: The Guardian.
1: the Guardian has partnered with Audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details.
2: Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk...
3: The You and Yours programme on Radio 4, which broadcasts for one hour a day for five days a week, has more staff on it than the entire complement of BBC Radio Merseyside.
2: The backlash against cuts to BBC Local Radio reaches Westminster. Also in the podcast, Radio 1 is up, Radio 3 is down, and Absolute Radio 80s hits the million mark. We bring you everything you need to know about the Rajars, but we're afraid to ask. Plus, we ask what the News Corp shareholder revolt means for the Murdochs. It's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. Here with me in the pub this week, I have Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of independent production company Something Else, which does a vast array of digital stuff and also produces Radio 4's Gardener's Question Time. Have you got your bulbs in yet, Steve? Uh, I am probably the least gardening-able person in the entire office of Something Else. But Gardener's Question Time going well. Yes, very. I'm sure it is. And also with me is Paul Robinson, Broadcasting Consultant and Managing Director of Kids Co. TV. And Paul, it's a tradition to ask about your recent air mileage, and I understand uh, last week was no exception.
0: No, good good week. I was in India last week, but I have to confess my petunias have actually wilted while I've been away. Well, it's
2: bad news. And you're off next week, I hear, too.
0: I am. I'm going to Hong Kong next week, so I'm going to miss the radio festival. Shame.
2: Very nice. It's a, it's a one-man carbon footprint. Well, we start this week at Westminster and an MP's debate about the BBC's proposed cuts to local radio. Many of the BBC's 40 local radio stations in England face budget cuts of 20% or more in the BBC's latest round of cost-cutting. Critics say the cuts, which will lead to the loss of around 280 jobs, are unfair, unjustified and a travesty for listeners. Earlier, we heard from Luciana Berger, that was her at the top of the show, the Labour and Co-operative MP for Liverpool Wavertree, speaking at the debate on Wednesday. But now,
3: over to former Culture Minister Ben Bradshaw, speaking at the same debate. Uh, I'd like to declare an interest. I began my broadcasting career with BBC Radio Devon, and the focus of this debate has rightly been on local radio, but at least one member has mentioned the fact that uh, that regional TV current affairs is, is facing even bigger cuts. Uh, particularly to their uh, Inside Out programme, which actually has more viewers than Panorama and some of the biggest national documentaries in the country. And as MPs, we are acutely aware of the importance of local radio, regional TV for the health of our democracy. And at a time when ITV, independent local radio, local newspapers are doing less local news and current affairs, it's absolutely vital that the BBC maintains its commitment to quality and local and regional output. Now, I understand that the BBC is having to make savings because of the severe and, in my view, unjustified cuts imposed on it by the government. But the BBC should be taking a much more long-term strategic approach to their reduced circumstances. As the Honourable Honourable Gentleman just said, instead of trying to continue doing everything (coughs) they currently do with less money, salami slicing, as he put it, uh, programmes that are often already completely cut to the bone. They should be bold and stop doing things that few people watch or listen to or that the commercial sector already does perfectly adequately. It seems to me that the BBC management was so traumatised by the backlash to their earlier proposals to close Six Music and the Asian Network that they won't contemplate closing down anything. That is not leadership. And the current proposals, as a number of honourable members have said, also reflect a very strong London and south-east bias. Now, this is one part of delivering quality first that seems to
2: have been seized upon by critics, a bit like they did with uh, Six Music in yet another BBC cost-cutting review two years ago. Now, Paul, do you think local radio is getting the rough end of the stick here?
0: Well I think the first thing to say is the BBC cuts of 16% I think are not unreasonable so I disagree with Ben on that point but local radio is actually very very cheap BBC local radio is not well resourced Uh, if you go to any BBC local radio station and I've worked at a number of them um, particularly weekends it's held together by sellotape and string so 280 jobs in the whole scheme of things is not very many jobs saved and the money you can take out of local radio is going to be very very small the mistake the BBC made of course is forgetting that mps like to appear on the radio because they want to talk about the things they want to talk about and bbc local radio gives them space they can't really appear on commercial radio there's highly it's highly competitive getting onto five live or radio four but bbc local radio you can get on there regularly if you're a local constituency mp so of course mps are going to be very sensitized to this uh, so the bbc probably didn't think this through quite carefully enough the reality is that bbc local radio is not the place to go for big savings it's just not there
2: It's cheap, it's cheerful, and it's also uh, quite popular It gets 7 million listeners, or in fact 7.25 million in the latest listening It it is popular. I mean, I
0: think that um, it's not unsensible to say that BBC local radio, maybe in the evenings, weekends, overnights, should share some programming. And BBC in the north, for example, um, has very successful um, evening programmes, which are shared right across a number of local radio stations, that sound really good. And with technology these days, you can still, of course, identify locally as the local station, even though the programme may come from another part of the country. Um, so that's the right thing to do, and then to maintain a uh, focus on breakfast time during the day and drive time, which are the key times when local information is required by listeners, and really deliver good quality local content at those particular peaks.
2: See, there seems to be a real uh, emerging resentment uh, that uh, these cuts are hitting local radio, uh, but not, for instance, Radio 4, and some of the MPs were talking about a regional bias towards the south, uh, south London, and... Uh, at the expense of the north and the west do you think that's fair no i think that's a complete nonsense and you know flip it the other way what would
1: the uh the noise be like if the bbc had come out and said we're making huge cuts to bbc radio 4 but we're going to preserve local radio you know, we all know the answer to that. And I think when you hear MPs talking about, well, the BBC, sh- you know, the BBC should have been looking at services they close. We all know what they're saying because Radio 4, no one's going to touch. Radio 3, you can't possibly touch because the elite would get very upset about that. So what you're really talking about is either Radio 1, Radio 2, or, um, BBC 3. In terms of services that, that the political elite don't see or don't quite understand in terms of their place within the, within the marketplace. Um, you know, I agree with Paul that when you look at lo- local radio, actually what the BBC is saying is they're not going to be really touching the, um, the key parts of the, of the output. What they're talking about is actually doing the same thing, the same rationalization that commercial radio has already been through, which is networking in places where it makes sense to do so because the audience doesn't require a local service as much at that
2: time. But Just they're saying that of- such a the... Sorry, I was going to
0: say, I, was going to up, I was going to say, agree with Steve with one exception and that is Radio 3 and uh, I'm going back now to um, when I was going through this process in the 90s when I was at the BBC as head of strategy and the thing that surprises me is taking aside Radio 3 as a network, I'm amazed the BBC does not grip up the issue of the orchestras to have five orchestras fully funded by the BBC seems to me to be utterly crazy and when you're um, having to look for 16% cuts that's absolutely the time to look at outsourcing, finding a new home, finding a a new way of funding those orchestras five in-house orchestras in this current climate is not the right use of bbc license fee money
1: actually funnily enough i was with some senior people from the bbc yesterday and they talked exactly about this and i think we will see they will come to this question probably later in the year i think I they are so. under review aren't they that i hope so because they've
0: always ducked it you know it comes up every time and they go oh no no not the orchestras oh no, no. you know it's the chattering classes but they've got to really grip this up now
2: yeah. and they've just moved to Salford so maybe that makes it harder to do something with them in the, in the immediate future but uh, to the point yeah. that some of the defenders of local radio make is that of those 7 million listeners, about, for t- about 2 million listeners, that's the only radio, BBC radio station they have contact with, and a lot of them don't go online or, or watch television. So, I mean, that's an important point to make. The other point is that Radio 2 now, of course,
0: has gone much younger. So actually local radio is, um, has got more of a niche in terms of the audience it serves. Commercial radio is not ever really going to serve 55 pluses properly. There's no advertising mark to support it. Radio 2 has gone younger. BBC local radio, for many people, is the only
2: place to go. So do you expect there to be a U-turn, Steve? Uh, not one, that I don't think, that you'd a- a- approve of by the sounds of it. But uh, do you think this might be somewhere where the BBC Trust no- says, no, hang on, you've gone too far in this respect?
1: I'd be very surprised because I think if you look at the climate, the BBC
2: obviously has to find these
1: cuts. I think they've been very careful to avoid the sort of scenario they faced last year with Six Music. And um, the political will is actually there to ensure that these that these that these cuts and changes are found. And I think actually when you look on on the service, if, the, if, the, if, if BBC hierarchy are able to deliver on what they're saying they can, which is, I- in effect, the audience won't really notice a great deal of change, then I can't see the BBC Trust are really going to want
2: to upset the apple cart on that. Well, Culture Minister Ed Vasey, who was at the debate, he was accused by some MPs of not taking the debate seriously enough and perhaps they had in mind this moment when the Culture Minister offered up his own local radio station a ready-made jingle BBC Local Radio has 7 million <coughs> listeners My honourable, uh, the honourable gentleman from Oxford East invited me to talk about BBC Radio Oxford and as uh, everybody knows this is a chance to praise our local radio station the last time I praised them they turned it into a jingle so let me say BBC Radio Oxford uh, your listening pleasure is assured uh, with Malcolm Boyden Joel Boris Johnson, Michael, sorry, Ed Vasey there it's fun, but possibly not entirely helpful. Paul, do you think the BBC's case hasn't necessarily been helped by some of the PR gaffes we've seen from from Mark Thompson, who said, well, if you don't like working here, then go and work elsewhere. And Helen Bowden, who told um, staff on the, the BBC's regional TV show Inside Out uh, to grow up and uh, told them we could have killed you off.
0: I think Mark has handled it really badly. I think when he announced the uh, the findings of Delivering Quality First, I thought some of it was incredibly patronising the way it was presented. It was lacking in detail. Um, he's failed to connect with ordinary staff. And I have to say, I think Mark is sort of loved by nobody. I mean, as a DG now, he doesn't really look like he's got, you know, a huge future, I don't think.
1: Steve? Well, I mean, I think the only thing to, to, to add around that is, is there's been this uh, constant rumour, hasn't there, that he'll sort of see the BBC through... Uh, past the Olympics and that would be a, a sort of great swan song moment and, and you know maybe maybe there's an element of of a leader who knows he can go for bust here because
2: you know he's, uh, he's, he's planning his his next move the final lap well there's more on BBC Local Radio and everything else DQF at mediaguardian.co.uk Next up, the Murdochs. Regular listeners, that's all of you, surely, will know that last week we were keenly anticipating the News Corp general meeting and the impending shareholder revolt. Plus, there was the appearance by Tom Watson MP to look forward to. Well, maybe not everyone was looking forward to it. I spoke to The Guardian's media correspondent, James Robinson, and asked him exactly how humbling a day it was for Rupert Murdoch.
4: Not as humbling as he uh, pronounced his uh, appearance before Parliament in July was, but humbling nevertheless. I mean, a, a, a strong rebuke. To uh, Rupert's running of the company and his decision to anoint James Murdoch as, as his chosen successor, without without doubt, such is the nature of News Corp. Shareholding that
2: no matter how many uh, of the of the um, the company's non-family shareholders revolted, there were
4: no one was ever going kind to of likely to be uh, removed from the News Corp. board. That is correct. Yeah, no, that is correct. I mean, uh, I think if you strip out the Murdoch block vote of nearly forty percent and the seven percent that Prince L will lead owns which is who's a very supportive shareholder two-thirds of the independent directors oh sorry shareholders uh, voted against James's re-election but you're right I mean it makes no difference in practical terms that does not mean that James will not sit on the board but it is it's hugely embarrassing uh, for for an overwhelming majority of non-Murdoch shareholders to say James should not be running this company remember James is third in command of the of news court now um it, it, it can't, you can't put a positive gloss on it um, he, He's only survived on a technicality So what does this mean for James Murdoch's future And the chances of him taking over from uh, from his dad at the top uh, I've seen
2: him verity described as a, as a busted flush And a, and a dead man walking um, Is it all over for James? I mean he's, he's come back from uh, adversity before But are the odds stacked too much against him this time?
4: Yeah, no, I think he can't. He can't succeed, um, Rupert. I mean, it's obviously somewhat, somewhat dependent on timing. If Rupert was to be forced out himself, or if he was to stand down soon, uh, he, as we never tire of reminding everyone, he is now uh, an old man. He's eighty. Um, so, but if he was to step down in the next year or two, I just there is no way James could succeed him. Not not after the institutional shareholders have publicly pronounced. Uh, to all and sundry that they do not believe he would do a, a good job. It's, it's just, I think it's unthinkable. I mean, he could go some way to repairing his reputation um, next week, uh, or is it the week after when he appears before the Commons again? 10th of November. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that he's in a situation now where, uh, this is about phone hacking scandal at the News of the World, where it, it, he is uh, disputing uh, an account of, how much he knew about hacking given by two of his former senior employees i mean there 's no way that um, he can it 's going to be a difficult encounter of him in a few weeks' time with the, the likes of Tom Watson um, sharpening their knives and, and trying to finish him off in that sense so I, I just can 't see an answer to your question rambling answer to your question i can 't see how he can how he can how he can ever succeed his father did Tom Watson land any telling blows uh, more yeah, big bad Tom um, Murdoch's uh, nemesis flew over to LA in dramatic style, but um, not for a film role. But not for a film role. I mean, who knows? Maybe he did have talks with uh, Hollywood studios about the, hacking the movie. But um, I mean, he he, he managed to uh, drum up a lot of publicity. I'm not. In, I don't think he did actually he, he landed any telling blows. I think he warned of. Uh, of other private investigators which may have been working who may have been working for the news of the world um but really he just highlighted he, he managed to keep to keep the murdoch in the news which is which is really all that you can do at the moment without any solid evidence of of uh, new uh new crimes that may or may not have been committed during during uh, you know at the news of the world so years ago um he's doing a very he's done a great job hasn't he at, 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 at uh, going after Murdoch and highlighting uh, highlighting James Murdoch would still be inheriting his father's job if it wasn't for Tom Watson. Uh, I'm guessing that Murdoch will have to pre- uh, perform a little
2: bit better than uh, Les Hinton, the former News National chief executive, who was back before the uh, the Culture Select Committee
4: uh, on Monday. And his chief line appeared to be, I-, "I don't really remember." Correct. Yeah. Well, he's got sort of as many ways of saying he can't remember as you know Eskimos have words for snow. You know, he, he I can't remember. I don't recall. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, it was actually to be honest. Hinton's performance was genius I mean he had a very simple strategy Which was to be incredibly evasive And he executed it brilliantly I mean he, he was the only He was He, he was almost It was weird He was like one of the most convincing witnesses Of the whole affair Even though what he said was blatantly uh, You know quite ludicrous really In terms of the amount of details he'd forgotten He was a very polished performer The problem with James is In my view um, He He uh, obfuscates and rambles uh, and uses management speak um, as that's the what his strategy when he's faced with an awkward question um, and and dissembles and it 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 just makes him seem even more or even less convincing so and he'll have to change his approach I think he'll be I'm sure he'll already be preparing for that encounter but I think he needs to um change the way he speaks and um in order to in order to to come across as a credible witness really
2: and finally, there are fears that the uh, the Leveson inquiry into media ethics and the phone hacking, of course, um, could potentially jeopardise future prosecutions.
4: This is a story uh, that appeared in the Guardian uh, on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the fear is that, of course, as the the, the police investigation into phone hacking continues, uh, if the same people who are uh, who may find themselves charged with a crime are called by the inquiry uh, and begin to reveal uh, stuff during their the, the course of their evidence uh, it may be that they can subsequently claim they, they couldn't have a fair trial i mean in other words the, the, the leveson inquiry could be manipulated by some of the uh, the, the people that the police are investigating in order to make get, you know in order to get them off when uh, when and if a criminal trial takes place, it's an interesting one. This is the problem be that involves have to, in. to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, he, I mean th- that is that is true. He can he can always stop people asking particular questions, can't he? But it does make the whole exercise quite complicated, and it does illustrate the difficulty of having an inquiry into phone hacking in at the same t- in the same time as a, a criminal investigation is taking place. The that's alternative fun. is to put it off, but then who knows when these criminal investigations will uh, be over and prosecutions exactly. be completed? Exactly. I mean, that's the problem. If you waited until the the, the, prosec- the prosecution charges. Had been laid and and a trial would be taking place. You you wouldn't have an investigation to this for two you know possibly up to two years, and that clearly politically that wasn't possible for for Cameron. He had to act quickly to try and uh, seem to be uh, dealing with this problem. So it's it, it's I mean it's not a, an, it's an issue that comes up uh, you know elsewhere in the courts. So I, don't, I think there's a, there are ways around it, but it's just something that Leveson will, will need to grapple with. James Robinson, there,
2: uh, Steve. James Murdoch's next appearance before MPs will be one to watch. Well. I, Yes and no. I mean, of course it will
1: in the sense that there's bound to be one or two headlines. But actually, let's just think about the first appearance. This is going to be someone who's obviously incredibly well-trained and well-versed in terms of what questions he might face. And actually, I don't think the, um, the committee of MPs are as daunting as they could be because... Um, when you, w- when you look at the array of people and the way that that committee organises itself, everybody gets a turn to ask, to ask a few questions. What they should be doing is obviously allowing someone like Tom Watson, who really knows the detail of this and who's, who's been running with a passion for it for a number of years, to really grill in the same way that you find the, uh, congressional hearings do in, in, in America. And I think that's been a big tactical error. And so if, you know, what I would expect is actually James Murdoch, I wouldn't think we'll be fearing too much here. There's also obviously a number of things legally he just he just isn't going to say. Whether that affects his position is a different thing. But, you know, are we really going to see many headlines coming out of this? No, because is he going to hold, a, hold up his hand and say, yes, yes, I was aware of the 4 Neville email? Of course he
2: isn't. Anyway, on now to some of the other stories making the media headlines this week. First up, the latest radio listening figures from the good people of Rajar. Uh, Paul, who do you think, who are the winners this time round?
0: Well, overall, the whole industry is a winner because radio listening is incredibly strong. You know, it, it's up year on year. Uh, digital listening continues to grow, albeit maybe not at the pace we'd like it to grow, but it is growing. Uh, DAB is in growing its hours. Again, you're not fast enough to get to analog switch off, but there's steady, solid growth there. It's nearly um, nearly
2: thirty percent now, just about.
0: yeah, which is, which is decent. But I mean, clearly, nowhere near near switch off. Um, I mean, in London, you know, you see the continual movement of of capital and magic and heart. You know, changing, changing positions uh, with with capital now back on. Uh, number one commercially with reach but heart is number one for hours magic's fallen back a bit you know so there's all that jostling position going on Um, smooth's done a bit better but it's still desperately bad in london with a 1.7 percent market share which is way below where it does in uh, the rest of the country Um, radio 3 i think is a real loser here because you know whilst you shouldn't just judge bbc networks on sheer audience size um, as we said earlier radio 3 is a very expensive network and therefore it's a very expensive network in terms of cost per listener hour and for radio 3 to further the lose audience on the back of its revamped schedule i think is is worrying and um you know listening to radio three i have to say i think their weekday breakfast show in an attempt to be uh, accessible has completely gone too far and they just don't know how to do accessibility at radio three it's it's a dire listen it's utterly utterly embarrassing to listen to um, classic fm's got three times the audience of radio three you know radio three must do what it's good at which is be a distinctive public service classical network not try and emulate classic fm and i'm really surprised the BBC's gone down that route. I think the radio figures are you know, punishing Roger
2: for that decision. Well, two things on Radio 3. One is that it usually enjoys an upswing in audience in the summer on the back of the proms, and this time it went down, which is very unusual. And the second thing is the changes Roger Wright made was intended to get a bigger audience and now it appears to have had the, the reverse effect. And the last time he made big changes to the schedule back in uh, 2007, the audience went down to its lowest ever. So, um, Steve, you know, the next quarter will be... Uh, uh you know keenly anticipated well also i think um uh, coming from wrong paul but i think this is
1: at a time when when classics audience has also dropped as well it has. uh y- y- year on year and 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 y- you know classic equally is i think struggling to refresh itself a little bit and and and, f- and find a new life so you would have thought potentially if radio 3 is looking to broaden a little bit there is a there is an opportunity there which you know as paul's quite rightly said they don't really
2: seem to be grasping yet if Radio 3 dipped, Radio 1 grew. In fact, Radio 1 grew to its biggest audience since uh, New Methodology, my favourite phrase, uh, was introduced uh, 12 years ago. Uh, and this, despite the fact that uh, Chris Moyle's dream of um, having the number one breakfast show in the country, seems further away than ever as he fell, uh, I think he's now 1.7 million listeners behind uh, Chris Evans, Steve.
1: I think this is a, a, a fantastic uh, vindication, actually, for Radio 1, because I think what you hear with that station at the moment is a really confident-sounding Proposition that really understands very clearly who it's targeting and what it's trying to achieve. And also is trying to be, with certain parts of the schedule, quite innovative. In what it's doing, uh, in the ways that it uses interactivity and red button and um, and 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 web content, and um, so I think in that sense it's a real indication. I think the only slight uh, element to that is assuming Ben Cooper ends up getting the job. Um, That's which, the
2: uh, current uh, ready one acting controller, yeah, acting controller, and
1: and uh, you would have thought the, the, the sort of favourite to land the job. Um, presumably presumably if i was in ben's shoes i i'd think i don't necessarily want record figures i don't want to necessarily inherit record figures it's uh it's uh you know it's it's setting a, a,
2: a high bar and pull back to digital briefly i'm at absolute radio 80s uh is now the most popular digital-only commercial stations, so uh, closing in on six music. Now, on the one hand, Absolute Eighties—I find it slightly depressing because it's an eighties-themed channel. It doesn't feel very forward-looking. But at the same time, it's a digital success story, and not quite overnight, but uh, in the space of a year, it's doubled its audience.
0: But you know, I think I think Absolute and Clive Dickens were very smart to spot this because, in a way, you know, eighties now uh, is the music that people who are now in their forties grew up with. Uh, a bit like you know, when I was younger, it was you know, sixties when you know the Gold Station started. They're all playing sixties and seventies. So eighties is now the heritage music. You know, you go back ten years it's still too modern you go back too far and it's your parents music but 80s is still actually you know stuff that people remember in their 40s and you know there are lots of great bands there's lots of great stories there's sort of showbiz around it with a glam rock and to their credit absolute you know spotted it and they've programmed really really well there is, of course, another 80s station now, an internet station uh, called Nonstop 80s on the on the horizon as well. Just just launched. So I think we may see other other copycat stations. But it just shows you go for a format, you do it well, uh, you understand the audience, and they've been rewarded. And good for them.
1: Is the, is the other vindication with Absolute the 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 sort of plus one approach they've taken that obviously we've seen many successful TV brands take. And up until now in radio, you could only really I think say say the bbc had that approach obviously through the natural fact that it's got radio one radio two radio three and so having this uh, portfolio of stations who all um work off the absolute brand name i, mean, I, I know some of the digital but the stations
0: absolute are brand, not but the absolute brand doesn't mean anything i mean the problem for virgin and absolute radio is that absolute doesn't mean anything and virgin did i think it's about the formatting not the brand i mean it's an interesting brand extension an interesting hypothesis but you know i think the core station would be doing better if the absolute brand really worked. and then you know aside from what the brand mean there's also the whole issue then of rage of course and we know that a brand that's relatively unfamiliar will tend to be punished in radio. And I, f- I fundamentally believe that actually Absolute Radio is a better station than the old Virgin Radio you know, as a listener. Mm. But unfortunately, it's not getting the ticks in the book.
2: To broadcasting now, and the BBC announced it's held on the rights to the Wimbledon Tennis Championships until 2017. It's reassuring to know that there are some parts of the BBC that DQF won't reach. It surely would have been the end of civilisation as we know it if the BBC had dropped Wimbledon. <laughs> Yeah I think I think Wimbledon's very interesting because um, certainly
1: uh, Wimbledon as a brand is um, is a very strong brand and I think equally Wimbledon sees a benefit in being associated with the BBC as opposed to another broadcaster they don't particularly need you know Wimbledon as an event generate so much money from from its brand you know all the towels and the bags and everything you see you know the airport shops all this sort of stuff that um i think that the broadcasting revenue becomes less important than it does maybe for some other sports but i think the main thing is i think they're being very smart about how they protect their brand and you know can you see wimbledon and sky being a happy fit i don't really quite see
2: that in terms of a brand match paul the bbc uh, were prepared to consider sharing a uh, formula one with sky in fact they did so uh, and they could have done with Wimbledon in theory because it's only the Wimbledon final itself which is uh, on the listed events as opposed to the entire tournament. But do you ever see a day when the BBC is going to have to consider doing that?
0: I think the BBC has got to think what are the key events they really want to hang on to and those they're prepared to share. And, and Formula One is clearly something that's not defining in terms of the BBC values whereas Wimbledon is you know I think it's what Steve said it's it's a bit middle class it's very British it's two weeks a year you know it's, it's everything that's English um, and it's sort of quintessentially BBC and you can't really imagine anybody else doing it so I think the BBC will do everything it can to always have Wimbledon and to protect Wimbledon you know as one of the last things it throws out of the uh, the balloon when they're having the balloon debate.
2: And Steve, I think it does very well. I, I think the BBC's coverage with Wimbledon is fantastic. I mean, Sue is great. The only thing I miss is John McEnroe when he gets to finals day, when his commitments are elsewhere. And I think that there really is no pundit to match him, I don't think. He, he, he is an excellent pundit. And, and actually, I think, um, I
1: think as a side note, he's, Uh, He's an example. Michael Johnson is another one in in athletics where uh, the BBC often is very good at, I think, um, identifying, you know, experts and ex-athletes so they can bring through as really intelligent, um, entertaining pundits. And as I say, I think Michael Johnson in athletics is another example of that paul
2: michael johnson he looks rather happier at the bbc than he did uh, when he was over at channel four during their coverage of the world athletics championships uh, absolutely so. but, wasn't wasn't a it, triumph.
0: but isn't it weird how so many of these names when they move away from the bbc somehow sort of die you know it's, it's a whole litany of people isn't there from des line onwards you know they they work on the
1: bbc they go somewhere else and they seem to just sort of fade away well there's clearly an issue isn't there in terms of um production values away from you know this there's something going on behind the scenes in terms of um you know i don't know enough about the world of of, of sport production but 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 you're absolutely right, you know, BBC Sport always seems to be just that little notch higher than when you see the coverage, yeah. C- certainly on ITV. I wouldn't necessarily say that's true for, for Sky, who, especially obviously in the sense of football, have been so revolutionary
0: no, I, I agree with that totally. I think also there's this issue about room to breathe. You know, because there's all the breaks, particularly when you're doing soccer, when they obviously want to cram as many ads in as possible, the debate is always a bit curtailed. And you feel that when you're watching the BBC, it's got room to breathe and the characters come out a bit more. And there's, it just is more entertaining.
2: Hmm. Yeah, well, I think your thoughts were reflected online this week when the, the Media Guardian reported that ITV were likely to hold on to the rights to the FA Cup, live FA Cup matches and England internationals. And the response below the line was very much, oh no, ITV again, why can't the BBC bid for it? Um, so, you know, you do wonder why. Is is it just the ads, or is it the talent, or is it the attitude? All of those things, I think. Well, there's more on all those stories over on Mediaguardian.co.uk. Now, there's been no shortage of debate about the media's use of pictures of the dead Colonel Gaddafi, but it reached a new high or low on Monday when some man, Oliver Harvey, was pictured posing next to the corpse. It's the sort of thing Piers Morgan, or was it Andy Coulson, pioneered on the bizarre column back in the 80s being photographed next to a celebrity. Except in this case, it wasn't Tom Cruise. It was a dead dictator they were stood next to. Uh, bad taste, Steve? Does this does this cross the line? Where do you stand on this? Yeah, I think it was extremely ba- bad taste. Um,
1: you know, no one's going to be particularly unhappy that Colonel Gaddafi is no longer in charge. Uh, but but, um, but the idea of... of, of um, of, you know, displaying this. And, and, and actually, actually I, think, I think the biggest thing about this is, especially when it's in a newspaper, you don't know who's seeing that. It's on breakfast tables around the country. And, you know, I don't want to sound too puritanical, but there are children seeing that or there are people who, who's, who's, whose taste uh, barometers are going to be at different levels. You know, that sort of uh,
2: picture should not be appearing, I, I don't think, in a newspaper. Paul, do you think it's ever right or justified to publish a photograph of a dead person? Uh,
0: yes, a dead person, yes, but not in a sort of triumphal way that this particular picture was portrayed. I also thought some of the description in some of the papers I read was somewhat um, over-graphic, uh, particularly you know relating to the the knife or other object that was put up uh, part of his body part, and I just think that was just unnecessary, added nothing to the story. I would slightly disagree with Steve in that I do think there is a danger that when we're talking about Gaddafi or um, Saddam Hussein or, or other... Um, Leaders who are not Western leaders—that we assume that because they are vilified by certain people, they are automatically vilified by everybody—and that's not necessarily the case. And we've got to be very careful not to actually condone maybe um, what we might consider to be bad taste treatment because they are, you
2: know, in, in very common tyrants. Steve, I think some of the headlines where you touched on there, Paul, about the uh, sort of tone of some of the coverage—the uh, Sun the front page, for instance—that's for Lockerbie, and uh, the headline next to the. Um Oliver Harvey and uh, Gaddafi was um, dead dog. At least his last moments had been as violent as his victims. Um, the, it's, it crossed over from newspaper territory, uh, slap bang in the middle of newspaper stuff. Yeah, but that's to be expected I think especially from the
1: from the tabloids. Um I Do you don't think it was a fair reflection of what readers were thinking. Well, I, th- I actually to be fair I think it probably was. I mean, you know, if, if there's one thing the Sun is great at, it is understanding its audience. It's it's it, you know, it's always it's always done that extremely well. So, you know, I don't think there's anything um uh, you know, I don't find anything amazingly con- controversial in that
2: gaddafi Paul uh michael jackson's body was uh, on the front of the sun as well a few a few months ago. Do you think we 're seeing a sort of rise of of death porn? Are we going to see more of this because it was a, it was a real taboo not long ago, but now people don't seem to think twice? Well I guess uh, maybe
0: lack of um, you know public uh, condemnation or, or maybe worse or maybe more significantly perhaps um, drops in, in circulations as a result of people p- behaving like this may uh, not discourage further activity. I mean you do, things do tend to go in waves don't they? We've got to be careful not to think that because there have been two or three instances, that's a trend but you know I would say that if there's um, any evidence it's actually accepted or even beneficial to uh, newspapers businesses then they will continue with that practice.
2: And is it a reflection also the changing uh, nature of the world of media with online social media 24-hour news these images welcome. are out there
0: those images are out there i think steve's point though is right and that is that if you go to social media you elect to actually look at it uh, a newspaper can have sort of ubiquitous presence and therefore you know it is at risk of being seen by those who choose not to see it and that's why it has to be treated differently
2: Well, finally this week, we look ahead to next week's Radio Festival, which is going to be in Salford, uh, running from Monday till Wednesday. Now, Paul, I know you're going to be overseas on another jaunt, or business trip, I should say. Uh, But, Steve, uh, you're going to be there, so will we, with a a media talk coming from the festival. Uh, Two questions. What are you looking forward to, and and your predictions, please? Uh, Oh, what am I looking forward to? Actually,
1: I I, I do think it's a genuinely really strong programme. I think the innovation of the John Peel Lecture, which is going to be um, done by... uh, Pete Townsend this year and is going to be live on Six Music is a fantastic idea and something that I hope will will now find its uh, regular place at the festival. On a personal level, I'm really looking forward to seeing Ronnie Wood uh, on stage with Melvin Bragg because I know uh, how entertaining he is and I think that'll be a really fun session and uh that's the sony golder winning Ronnie wood produced by something else I, well, Is I that right? Want, i didn't want to say that bit but yeah <laughs> um but i also uh I'm, I'm i'm also very interested to hear ashley table being interviewed because obviously he 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 doesn't speak often um i think he's only appeared at the festival once before and that was on a panel i think he's being interviewed on a one-on-one by uh, Torrin douglas and um so i think that that's going to be really fascinating to listen to and paul what are you going to miss most
0: uh, I'm going to miss being in Salford. Uh, I'm going to be in Hong Kong, which is sort of you know nice, but Salford's good too. Um, look, I think what um, the team have done this year is put together actually a really good festival. It's got two things. It's got a lot of star names. Uh, a lot of big names from radio. You know, it's got people like um, uh, Steve Wright talking to Elvis Duran from uh, New York, which is going to be interesting. You know, Ronnie Wood mentioned Chris Moore, Mark Thompson, if he's a star. But also, I think it's tackling some of the really important issues. You know, things like playlists, um, social media, the whole issue of local radio and the death of local. We've been talking about so great combination. And I also want to put a quick plug in, if I may, for what I think is really great, which is our debut Radio Academy 30 Under 30. Um, slight, slight interest here because I was involved in it, but I think you know, identifying 30 young people who are really into radio and audio and celebrating them by the radio festival and the radio
2: academy is a really great thing to do under 30 just imagine my thanks to paul robinson and to steve ackerman media talk is produced by jason phipps i'm john plunkett thanks for listening
1: the guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one month no commitment trial of the audible service Audible has over 50,000 audio book titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.